A very special thanks to Li Hongzhang and the China Merchant Steamship Navigation Company for sponsoring today's episode. You were there for Qing when nobody else was. Do 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 do. Hey guys, it's Barbie, Stacy, and Ken. And welcome back to the final episode of Life in the Dream House, a podcast about the Qing Dynasty. Before we get started, be sure to check out our three previous episodes to stay caught up. Today, we are going to be talking about everything we've learned over the course of the past couple weeks about the Qing Dynasty. Societal and administrative. Do, 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 do. The Qing Dynasty started in 1644 and ended in 1912. Wow, that's a long time. Yep. The Manchus people established their own dynasty after conquering the Ming state when it was crumbling. The Manchus were the forerunners of the dynasty. They came from the nomadic Jurchen tribes in northeast China. Unfortunately, the Manchus singled out the Yunchus as the cause for the Ming's collapse. Wow. Manchuria transformed the previous dynasty, Ming, into a political and military state. They called it Manchu. This was under leader Nurhasi and his son Abahai, who gave the Manchu state a new name, Qing, in 1636. The military had eight main banners, bordered blue, plain blue, bordered red, plain red, bordered yellow, plain yellow, bordered white, and plain white. One crazy law we found stated that Chinese men had to shave their forehead and braid the rest of their hair into what we now call pigtails. This was to distinguish the Chinese subjects from the new Manchu followers. Wow, that's awful. I know. Even worse, not abiding to that law was punishable by death. Starting to talk about some of the rulers of the Qing dynasty, one is Qianlong, who was the fourth Manchu ruler. In 1720, Long installed Tibetan deities and the eunuch lamas into their region, um, their religion, when their country for the first time was incorporated in the Chinese empire. The next ruler was Kangxi. What's crazy about Emperor Kangxi is that in 1669, he was only 15 when he inherited the throne. That's wild. That's like us becoming emperor right now. I know. Despite that, he was one of the most respected powers in all China's history. His biggest achievements as a ruler are centered around maintaining unity in China under Manchu's rule. Culture. Do, 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 do. The next aspect of the Qing Dynasty we're going to be talking about is culture, more specifically the conflicts. In 1652, there was a frontier clash between the Russians and the Manchus, which ended with the Russians winning. The Russians encamped on a Moore River, which the Manchus claimed the left bank of. Consequences were the Russians were allowed to set up an Eastern Orthodox mission in Peking. This was the beginning of China's conflict with Europe. But in 1669, a treaty was signed at a Russian settlement to to declare peace between Russia and the Manchus. Moving on to the role of women in this, during the Enlightenment period, they embraced anarchism, socialism, and other foreign ideas. During this time, the structure of families and the role of women were restructured. The quote-unquote small family ideal was, re- was a replacement for the old, way, the old way, which was the Confucian model. This valued men over women and age over youth. 
Adding on to that, in the May 4th Discourse, marriage was seen as union between individuals and not families, which opened many pathways for women. Yeah, in March of 1853, Hung, or the Heavenly King, set up his capital, giving unheard of rights to the Chinese society to women. In March 1853, Hung, the Heavenly King, set up his capital, giving unheard of rights to the Chinese society, specifically to women. Also, the bridal color is scarlet. Environmental and agricultural. Do, 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 do. Moving on to the environment and agricultural aspect of the Qing, the empire reached its largest territorial developments. It ruled over China proper, Manchuria, Mongolia, Xinjiang, and Tibet. Yeah, in the very beginning of the Qing dynasty, the Manchus forced Chinese residents to move out of their homes in order to make room for the new soldiers. They also claimed Yangul's palace as the ruler's place of residence. Religious and spiritual. Do, 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 do. In this section, we focused a lot on the Shinidan, which was a sacrificial ritual, and it was established by the first emperor of the Han dynasty, but lasted till the Qing dynasty, and underwent many changes over the centuries. Through these changes, four basic parts remained. Tai Lao, which was the great sacrifice, three rounds of offering of food and wine to Confucius, known as Songshan, three offerings, Yahweh music performance, and Wenyu. Before the Qing dynasty, there were two main parts of Yahweh, but during the middle of the dynasty, only one remained. Yahyue compositions are referred to collectively as Dai Cheng Yue, which changed frequently over the centuries. The most recent Dai Cheng Yue was commissioned in 1742 by the Emperor Qianlong of the Qing dynasty. And now talking more about the evolution of the religion as a whole. As the Manchus' power grew, they attacked North China and absorbed their cultural influence. The Manchus openly supported Confucianism, but privately followed Tibetan Buddhism. And some early Qing leaders also followed Chan Buddhism. Technological. Do, 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 do. Trade was a humongous technological aspect of the Qing dynasty. For example, the Spanish and Portuguese galleys brought silver from Europe and the Americas to China. But one of the biggest moments in technology of this dynasty, if not the biggest, was the Opium Wars. The drug opium was first introduced into China to create a dependent market. It was also introduced to reverse the trade imbalances, as China was exporting more than it was importing. Giving some background on opium and the problems it brought, the East India Company controlled all trade between England and China, and they started exporting opium in the 1700s and sold 400 chests weighing around 133 pounds each. Oh my gosh. At this point, the opium habit spread, which resulted in shifting trade balance against China. The Europeans had finally found something the Chinese would buy, and that was opium. In 1821, 5,000 chests of opium were imported to China, and in 1839, that number rose to 30,000 chests, 
100 million ounces of Chinese silver was used to pay for this drug. Seeing as how absurdly expensive that was and also how much opium that was, Manchu rulers created laws banning the import of opium, seeing how influential it was on their economy. The East India Company technically complied, but still sent ships carrying opium to China, just under a different company name. So I guess they weren't breaking the law. And in 1733, the imperial government was very upset about the drugs. So the East India Company sold um, opium straight to Calcutta instead of Guangzhou, which was the sole port of entry for foreign products to Europeans, whose role was to act as drug traffickers. The first opium war lasted from 1839 to 1842 and resulted in Chinese indecision and humiliation. The Qing government in Canton tried to suppress the trade of opium by the British, but in 1842, the Treaty of Nanjing forced China to pay huge indemnities, open new trading ports, and to cede the Hong Kong to Britain until 1997. And that was like pretty recently too. Wait. Okay. The second opium war was focused more on trading and diplomatic rights were demanded. The Qing government resisted. Oh. The second opium war focused more on trading and diplomatic rights this led to the Anglo-French War of 1856 to 1860. This war is sometimes known as the Second Opium War or Arrow War. The war ended in 1860 when the Qing Emperor was forced to flee the capital and took refugee at Jeho. Due to both of these opium wars, the Qing Dynasty was weak and was beginning to fail. The biggest threat was the Taiping rebels, who had been planning to overthrow the Qing and start their own dynasty since 1850. They turned to the Confucian gentry first, and later to Western aid. They survived the Taiping, but had to accelerate forces of regionalism and create percent of Western intervention in China's internal affairs. Armies remained loyal to the Qing, although it was struggling. It was a never-ending problem because the Qing needed to learn from the West the tools that they needed to defeat the West to preserve their culture. They tried to deal directly with foreign powers, so many schools were created to teach and preserve China's culture, and some were sent abroad to learn from the West. Li Hongzhang was the leader of this movement. He started the China Merchant Steamship Navigation Company to try and secure the coastal shipping from the West. Although many tried, it proved ineffective because the Qing depended on regional power. They also lost a battle to Japan in 1895, which weakened their defense even more, and it came to a point where the dynasty could no longer defend itself and the Westerners began to take over. This symbolized the end of the Qing dynasty. After researching this, for me this has become a pretty scary topic because you think about 
the opioid crisis in America and just how much it affected, it's affecting our economy and how, go, looking back at the Qing dynasty, how much it devastated their whole community. You're so right. So for me, that's just been the scariest part. information we found is also similar to the modern feminist movement. The Enlightenment period, where women started to speak up about the unfair household setup, is happening now in another wave. Many women are sharing their experiences, which will further um, the development of our society. This has happened throughout history and continues to give more opportunities for women. Especially going to St. Mary's, I feel so connected to many of the women around me and um, I found that <laughs> I have such a deep respect for women who support and lift up other women. And I've just found that connection at St. Mary's. I definitely feel that, Catherine, especially with all our work that we're going to do in theology next year with social justice and all that good stuff. Like, the period of enlightenment definitely just like enhanced that for me. So what really stood out for me in, in the notes that we got about the Qing dynasty were the issues that they're having with trade, specifically with like imbalance and importing more than they export and exporting less than they import and all that, and how like Europe's like not happy with it. Like with the trade war that we have going on with China right now and all the tariffs that Trump has put on, just like everything and how angry the farmers are and just like everything that's going on is really kind of tying back to the Qing dynasty. And so that for me, that was a lot of like the modern twist that I got on this. And yeah, and I just feel like how panicked like the American like the whole country of the United States is about this trade war and you can totally feel how China would be with like all the opium crisis and just how like what if you had to pay so much money because this thing was more expensive and like that just so ties into it. All right, again, a big thank you to our sponsors and also our sponsor, Confucius, for starting the Confucianism movement and just having all those influences on the religion of the Qing dynasty. So big shout out to him. And if you haven't already, Again, make sure to check out our previous episodes. All right, guys, thanks for hanging out with us in the dream house. Do, 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 do. <laughs>